Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day was said by Caspar David Friedrich. He said, the artist should paint not only what he sees before him, but also what he sees within him. If, however, he sees nothing within him, then he should refrain from painting that which he sees before him. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Addie Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. And yes, in turn, inspire me and help me move forward. <laughs> On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with painter and digital artist Dan Cooper. Announcements. So, oh my gosh, I've been so freaking busy that it's been hard for me to churn out my uh, podcast, but <laughs> here we are today. Um, I just got a lot going on teaching classes at the Indianapolis Art Center. Most of those have already started up for the fall, um, but there will be another intuitive painting class that will start uh, in a couple months uh, if anyone would like to jump on board with that. Um, I do have an online class that's uh, How to Paint a Rose. It's free and it's available just for another little bit here just for a limited time on alchemyofpainting.com and we've recently added flower painting 101 so you can get the freebie how to paint a rose and then if you like that then you might want to take the more extensive class flower painting 101. Um, what else have I got going on at the uh, the hatch here in Indianapolis? I'm going to be doing an, an all-day workshop called start selling your art and that's going to happen on September 20, uh, tw uh, not 28th, 30th. <laughs> it's going to happen on September 30th. <laughs> um, and then in October, I'll be doing another flower painting party for them because they're so fun and popular. Um, all right, so let's move on from... Uh, everything that I've got going on, and that's just barely scratching the surface. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to talking about Dan Cooper, who is our guest for today, who I'm going to interview. Um, to give you an idea about uh, Dan's work and what he's like, Dan is a painter and a digital artist. He attended Indiana University at Bloomington on an Evans scholarship. And uh, he at the moment, I mean, he's just so involved in our Indianapolis arts community. I feel like every time I go out, um, to an art opening or whatever, I end up running into Dan because he is uh, very involved. Um, and he also currently teaches with the Indianapolis Art Center, uh, where I teach as well. And he teaches things like digital arts and painting. Um, here's what he had to say about his work. He said, my paintings combine science and art, astronomy and physics, particularly string theory, excite my imagination. Exciting possibilities for portraying multiple dimensions. Those unseen forces are depicted metaphorically 
entwining between faith and belief. A Midwest sensibility influences my visual stories. Nature and the recognizable objects symbolize abstract concepts. Each painting is a story, all part of a larger adventure. Um, And of course, you can find out more about Dan Cooper and his work on his website, which is cooperfineart.com. Now, on with our interview. Okay. All right. Well, uh, welcome, Dan, to my home and studio. I'm so glad that you're here for an interview. Hello. How you doing, Addie? Uh, it's, I, I really appreciate you inviting me, and it's an honor to, to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. I'm excited to talk to you, too. The first question I have is, what's the story of how you became an artist? <laughs> it's kind of cliche. I was sort of born to be an artist. My grandmother was an artist, and she was really well known for painting on China, real detail type things. And she also painted oils, uh, landscapes, and still lifes. And I was brought up doing all kinds of crafts, all kinds of media. Uh, I always just loved the idea of wood burning still, even though I haven't done it since I was a little kid. And but also music with piano and and then she actually let me play with her violin and melodica and I eventually got into guitar. So even my family knew that I was an artist. Uh, my parents just sort of I never even thought about it until a few years ago how some supplies just sort of appeared. Uh, not necessarily as just presents, but, you know, so I had the easels and paints and canvas and stuff that they were always getting me all kinds of supplies. And so I toyed with the idea of being a doctor for a while when I was in high school, because everybody thought that, you know, well, you know, doctor, but when it came time to, to go to college, um, I had a choice of going to IU or Purdue because of a scholarship I had, so it was real easy to decide on IU, but I also decided I don't want any more math like I had to do if I was going to be a doctor. And I I really knew I was an artist anyway, so that was a pretty easy decision to make, even though I hadn't really talked about with anybody. Just recently, it's kind of fun, my sister-in-law of my youngest brother found a uh, a school assignment he had to do when he was uh, he's like three years younger than me so he might have been a freshman at that point and he wrote a story about me being an artist and it was at a time when I really hadn't told my parents or anybody that you know I was still going to be a thoracic surgeon and uh So I thought it was really kind of nice that he had that insight that he was like, oh, he's an artist. So, I mean, I was even given Dr. Bobblehead doll for a birthday once. Right. Uh Yeah. But you switched. What happened after that? Well, I didn't really switch. I just was just always an artist. So it's just been a a road ever since that that's just been my path to... I paint, things go better in life when I'm painting instead of doing something else. Even though I, in my 20s, I had a series of goals that were 
business-oriented because I knew that art schools don't teach business. Uh, they don't really want to. Uh, yeah, there's a, they've, they're deliberate about that. So I made a list of different kinds of businesses I wanted to experience, uh, like uh, working for a national corporation, a family-owned business, work for the government, uh, that sort of thing. So, because I always knew that eventually I would be self-employed, and I had all those experiences. And uh, so, when it came time to think about having kids. It was a natural progression to start my own business a couple of years in advance of having kids so that I could be home all the time. But the art road was fun, too, of course. With uh, I did some things like art fairs where I learned that the kind of art I do is not art fair oriented. Okay. And uh, one of my heroes... Uh, like Picasso, he his whole career, he was the epitome of a fine artist to me in that he always continued to learn, he continued to explore. He didn't get to a style that was successful and he just started doing it as that's like in stopping. Uh, he would be successful and still try new things. And so back in high school, I had decided, you know, that's kind of the artist that I want to be is uh, to keep growing and keep doing new things all the time. And art fair art really isn't like that because I do a lot. I've been developing symbolism in my metaphors and combining science and art. And I paint about art, uh, left brain, right brain kind of idea. Uh, it's that science and faith side of us. And I combine both those in all my paintings. And so that just didn't really go well, but it's amazing to think back now how much I sold, though. There's so many paintings that are gone, and all the days before I was documenting photographically anything. So there's so many things that it's like, oh, man, I wish I could have that one back just long enough to take a picture of it. Oh, another, another art hero that I really have to mention, too, is uh, Marcel Duchamp. Okay. Because he was another person I discovered back when early in days in high school. And his philosophy stuck with me right from the beginning in that it's not what you paint or create that makes you an artist. It's how you live your life. And that really resonated with me. So that's uh, I've, my definition of how I've gone through life as an artist is, uh, is just that. It's how I live my life. Uh, so it's not just the painting, but uh, it's being creative in everything. So nowadays, when I teach at the Indianapolis Arts Center or work with special needs kids or uh, just my tribe of artists, one thing I always try to teach is how to be creative. It doesn't matter, matter the medium and all. It's just a matter of everybody is creative in their own way. Some people just have a hard time finding out what that is. 
uh, which is fun for me in working with so many different artists of different disciplines, which if we flash forward to so much past stuff, uh, for the last three, getting into four years now, I've been heavily involved with uh, the religion, spirituality, and the arts uh, initiative that's directed by Dr. Sandy Sasso. And each class has 12 artists selected, but they're from all different disciplines. So I was in the first class and there was like two painters, there was sculptors, installation artists, poets, storytellers, uh, musicians, all in that tiny group of 12 people. And we all studied intensely uh, the topic of the Akedah, which is the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. Okay. And we studied uh, through these, the staff at Butler. Each week we would learn about, uh, from, from Sandy Sasso, who's uh, Rabbi Emerita of the Beth El Zedek congregation. Uh, we learned about it from Genesis and also other religious perspectives. Okay. And... Uh, we studied the history of the art itself and uh, from uh, paintings and sculpture and from the centuries to present time. We studied the music that's been written about the subject and uh, just from so many different angles. And um, all the artists in the group immediately bonded and realized we weren't getting a chance to talk to each other. So we started meeting before class at the Butler Starbucks and talking about the topic on our own and what we were going to be creating for upcoming shows. And uh, we decided to stick together after the, the class ended. We had our show. We uh, kept. We decided to tackle another topic together. And Sandy Sasso stuck with us and helped kind of like supervise it. And we studied Jacob's Dream, which became a big, huge show at the Arts Garden for Spirit and Place Festival. And that was the beginning of all of us creating a new art form, which is uh, incorporates all these different disciplines. It's the first time we found anywhere, I mean anywhere, (laughs) that artists have studied uh, the same topic and created shows from studying together uh, and creating art. Uh, not so much as two different artists or three different artists creating one piece of art, but all these different artists creating their own art, but putting it all together into a dynamic show, which wow. then has, you know, the paintings, kinetic sculpture and installations and music and performances and poets and all some of them working together and some improv and nothing on a stage with the audience sub- submersed in all this activity. Uh, so it becomes something that's evolved from the happenings of the 50, for instance, and, and performance art. It's, it's, uh, it's become bigger than that. It's a, a different kind of show. Awesome. Uh, so we've also done that at Clues Hall uh, okay. last August, a year ago, August, and we used the hallways and the balconies and created different scenes and broke up 
poetry and stories into five different locations. And because we've studied stories from Genesis, from this Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's dreams and uh, uh, Cain and Abel, those are all stories about human sacrifice and murder and betrayal, you know, some really heavy-duty stuff. And we didn't want to have a show that was just going to be, oh, look at this, we got art on the walls, you know, this is all cute, isn't this nice? And the subjects are really pretty dark and deep. So we created a show that that would create some chaos and confusion. And so that, especially for the artists, uh, who knew in advance what was going to happen, and or they knew what was going to happen, but not really how it was going to evolve, what the process, how that would, how how it would go during an opening night, and uh, the uh, audience that showed up got a little hint of what was going on by because we immediately broke them up into different groups explaining a little bit of what was going on, but we also messed with the music, with the volume going up and down, and as timing became more skewed and people's nerves were being frayed, and uh, it affected me and one of the poets more than anybody else, I think. But in the discussion afterwards, Everybody got it, and everybody liked it, which I was kind of disappointed about. I was hoping somebody would be able to say, no, it was awful. <laughs> you know, I wanted some of those negative feelings to come out right. that uh, everybody could sense what was going on. But, you know, if you were an audience member, it was like, oh, this is kind of cool they're doing this. But um, so the, but the poets in this who had to go through that, though, of breaking their piece up and going into different environments to continue it on and, and timing it with this music that was made for the occasion. Okay. Uh, it was, it was you know, they were, it made them think about what they were doing a little bit better and affected their performances. I saw some of the best readings of poetry I ever saw in my life. Uh-huh. Uh, and they they all talked about later how they discovered aspects of their work that they hadn't thought about before sure. because they just weren't standing at a podium or, you know, a nice old safe environment doing their works that dealt with some really heavy subjects like schizophrenia and and death and confusion and stuff like that. So now we're going to have another show in November oh, okay. that will be at the... Um, Interface Center. Okay. That's near 42nd and Northwestern, near yes. the IMA and near Butler and Christian Theological Seminary next door to that. Okay. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen yet. <laughs> the artists are we're getting together in a few days to have our first meeting to okay. to really talk about it. We've already got interest from the, a lot of different artists that'll. So we'll see what we come up with again. But I know for an opening night, uh, we'll do something that'll be a little bit different. But I'm never going to do chaos and confusion again. My art is really about peace and love and feeling good. And I don't, I just, I want to stay on the light side. Right, right, right. Well, I, th- I think sometimes we have to go to a dark place um, with our artwork and we have to 
span the spectrum of all that is and because um but sometimes it's just about oh we're representing what's beautiful and what's light and airy but um for myself you know those pieces that are darker or exploring those sides they you know I I don't usually want to share them as much um I assume they probably wouldn't be as sale worthy either but you know that they can um they certainly have a place in our our art world right so I'm curious does this class continue does that this um rabbi teaches is it like an ongoing class or it's every year or can you tell us a little bit more about that because now I'm intrigued the the um sixth class is starting up uh later this month oh Uh, you artists have to apply for it okay and uh which is usually in the spring The current topic is creation with uh, a heavy emphasis on Adam and Eve and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which uh, the class is going to be doing a lot of uh, activities and work with the Indiana Humanities Council. And this, their upcoming theme is Frankenstein, which deals with the creation and Adam and Eve topic from being the very first science fiction piece. So we'll see what comes from that. The last class was on the topic of creation. And uh, so all these artists in these different classes, which there's now 60 and soon will be 72 from all different disciplines, uh, I would say half of them are still wanting to be active as a group and would never, of course, trying to gather a cloud of artists is uh, isn't always great with timing but usually we can get 12 to 18 artists together real easily to put together a show and get together for a meeting like we're going to be having and uh, we're going to be looking at different opportunities to do workshops and uh, we've got a lot of artists that are good at speaking uh, whether in churches or secular environments and uh, talk about the process that that we've been doing that's been pretty unique so there's a uh, you can go to butler's website okay. and it pops up real quickly the religion spirituality and the arts as well as on facebook okay. we have a facebook page as well okay wow i, I feel like maybe i'd heard a teeny bit out of my peripheral vision or seen a little bit about it, but I've not gone to any of these shows and now I'm really intrigued that I've heard your your synopsis of it. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to be looking into it because that sounds really different and cool. Um, so I'm going to move on to our next question and that's what draws you to the digital arts and I know you often combine your acrylic painting with it. Um, and when, when you decide on a piece, you know, say, oh, I'm going to make a piece on creation or, you know, you, you're inspired, you're going to make a piece. What makes you decide, okay, this is going to be a photography piece. This is going to be a painting piece. This is going to be one where I combine the two. How does your process go when you're just making those decisions? Back in 1968, there was a TV show called 21st Century hosted by Walter Cronkite. Okay. It was only on for two seasons, and each episode 
Uh, they would talk about different things that were going on in the world, especially as science and technology and how that would affect the future. And of course, there were several episodes talking about computers, which back in those days, a computer filled up a specially ventilated air-conditioned room, and there were punch cards, like typewriters, that you fed the punch cards that were read, and you came up with your stuff. And there were a couple of artists that were able to use coding to create some real fundamental basic uh, drawing kind of stuff. And I knew then that I wanted to be able to do computer-generated art someday. So for the next many years, I kept watching the development of computers and saw a few that were getting close to doing graphics and... I won't go through all some of the old names, but you know, b- before Apple, there were there were some other attempts, yeah. and uh, but it wasn't until Apple came up with the Mac Two CI and uh, and the FX at the time; those were the fastest computers at the time. And I finally dove in and uh, got one. With all you know, the beginning software and the printer and a large screen, and it was as expensive as buying a car in those days, getting all that stuff. So I remember the night at the night of the day that when I was going to bed that night, okay. I'm laying there thinking, you know, I don't even know how to turn it on. I mean, I hadn't even been around one or anything other than I had begun using some uh, a desktop publisher nearby to do some typesetting. Yeah. And looking over their shoulders, they're doing that. And I'm thinking, I, mean, I could be faster than that. I could do better than that. So I, was, I saw them using a Mac. But um, so when I finally got one, it was the first time I'd actually had my hands on one. And by, I, I could justify the cost of buying this car that I didn't know how to turn on uh, just from typesetting, doing my own typesetting. Because by then I was doing graphic design. That was my, my excuse for learning computer art was by doing graphic design okay and i was doing complete jobs by the end of the first week and i just had a knack for the way the computer program language goes i I mean i to the point where i gave one of my clients a lesson on how to do use excel and he's on a PC using Excel. I'm on a Mac, and I had never even seen Excel before. But I knew from the structure and what he was giving me from the menu items that I could figure out what it, I could tell him what to do next in different steps. Okay. So my mind kind of works that way. Okay. And so when you're talking about how do I, if I'm going to do something like a, t- a painting of creation, which I'm doing a painting right now called Time Creation. Okay. It's, uh, I usually just get an immediate image of, of, how, of a piece. And uh, so it's not a matter of choosing how I'm going to complete, do an idea. It's more like I got the idea and now I've got to make it happen. And is interesting, though, in like time creation, the painting I'm doing now, that I started it in the mid-70s. Okay. 
<laughs> I created a textural background okay. that uh, then I left aside. And then when uh, I wanted to do this painting that I had the vision of, it was like, oh, there's the beginning of it because the, that background texture is now balanced and, and is part of the composition of this seemingly realistic looking landscape. Okay. And, uh, but you can only see that texture when the light is right. Which is something I've been doing since the 70s. I like incorporating light a lot. So when it comes to incorporating digital with acrylic, uh, the same kind of things happen. I never really thought about it until bringing the painting I'm working on currently with the combination because one of my early uses of combining was... Uh, with some 35 millimeter Kodachrome slides okay. that had never been exposed. So they're like black, dark, okay. Okay. or were kind of weird at the end, the very end of a roll and end of a roll, you can get this little coloring thing where like a little bit of light snuck through somewhere. And I had those from again this is like mid 70s where okay. i kept where i was doing a lot of 35 millimeter photography and using kodachrome of course and uh i took some of those back then and kind of playing around and took a lighter and and burned the emulsion so i had these there was like this bubbling and stuff that that went on and okay. there was several that were really cool that i thought someday i'll be able to use these so I hung on to them, kept them separate even. And then as the uh, combination of being able to do the digital art and the printing, that became real important, was be able to print on canvas. Uh, the first place that had could print on canvas was at Heron Gallery, okay. uh, run by the print department there, run by Mary Shaw. When Heron moved to their current location, IUPUI, uh, Mary became part of a company that uh, uh, could print, had the big printers that could okay. do that. And they have, the, they have one of the country's largest scanners, as a matter of fact. Okay. And uh, so I could create an image. I could digitize those, these boiled emulsions and then in the design of the, the layout of the painting I could put where that digitally digital stuff needed to be and have it printed to scale you know the right size I could even put in there where my little folds would be for stretching on the canvas that was really cool, you know, when you could, when you're going to print your an image digitally, you can do little things like, oh, there's where it's going to be folding around my wrapping around, so wow. you can get it nice and straight, and then uh, finish the painting. Okay. And uh, so that's kind of where uh, that evolved to. The very first time I got to do one was a commission. Uh, from a guy in uh, Bob Bishop out of Chicago okay. who wanted a painting by me. And that's the, really the only way I do commissions is uh, people want a piece of art by me and then I do something for them, but I decide what that's gonna be. Okay. Okay. 
And uh, so Bob wanted a painting by me. And I, even though he's from Chicago, I ended up doing a scene of Indianapolis where I combined Broad Ripple and downtown Indianapolis. So it's almost like Broad Ripple was more of a Mass Ave kind of neighborhood instead of being so far from downtown. And I re rearranged Broad Ripple. Uh, so I had uh, the Vogue over, uh, and I, I moved the fire station to the other side of the street. And because I moved the Vogue into view down below the corner wine bar, I had I liked that building with the spire. So I put it on the other side of the street below the fire station. And there was Renee's Delicatessen from the past that's no longer there anymore. But that was a real favorite place to go because we had like a... Uh, anniversary dinner. It's a great place for anniversary dinners and oh. stuff. And a French delicatessen. Oh. And so I had to put that in there. And uh, and I populated the streets and and uh, made this whole scene of uh, like after a a spring rainstorm and the clouds have parted and there's oh. beautiful magenta tinted clouds and the pavements wet and uh, people are out for the night and uh, I put Bob and his wife crossing the street with a shopping bag and arm and uh, I, I put myself in it and my family with my dog over in the fire station lawn so a lot of that was a combination with digital, but also did a lot of it with the painting. You know, it's okay. like the, the sky and the downtown and, and streets. There was a lot of painting element to it. Okay. Uh, and really the digital part was pretty much using photography to be able to rearrange everything like that. Okay. So uh, it took me a few years to do because I actually had this idea before it was technically possible to do. Okay. So I started working on elements. I started putting things together. Uh, and as I was getting things put together, the software was getting better. And finally, when Mary Shaw and Heron could do that, uh, they're now Virtu printing at Heart, Virtu at Heartland Printing at the Stutz building. Uh, that uh, I could finally complete that piece like 10 years later. Okay. So I, and the whole time, Bob never, I had a process. It's like, Bob, you want to see how it's looking? You want to see what it's going on? He's, nope, I'll wait until it's done. Okay. And uh, so when he finally came down to Chicago to the studio to, to see it, he kind of looked at it and he goes, oh, by the way, we got divorced. Oh, I'm like, no. oh, that's why I was like, oh, no. It's like, well, I can take her out. He goes, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. She was a part of my past. It's all right. Oh. So uh, he took it. But I was like, oh, no, I took too long, so long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, do you have an image of that on a blog or on a website where people can look? Because I'm curious to look it up now. I'm sure the listeners will be as well. Do you know if it's... Oh, of course. Yeah, the, I've, yeah, I've got it... Uh, on my website, I've got my website divided up into different um, periods, you might say, uh, different bodies of work. Uh, it's cooperfineart.com. Okay. Okay. And what's the title of the piece? Uh, Indianapolis Dusk. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Lovely. So what art projects do you currently have in the works? And I can see that you've got your project with your group that's going to happen in November and that process will be happening. Do you have anything else that's, you know, big and that's, oh, it doesn't have to be big, but just what are you working on right now that's exciting to you? Just trying to finish a painting is important to me because <laughs> it's so easy to be distracted by, by everything else because okay. I like doing so many different things. I need to finish doing the editing of a uh, documentary video that I've been working on that covers a three-year period. Of, and it's again, it's of the RSA artists. Uh, I've got video of the whole process from the time when WFYI started shooting in our class. They were uh, initially a sponsor. They're, they're, okay. uh, they partnered with me on this documentary, uh, which is also thanks to uh, Butler and Lily Endowment. Okay. And uh, it's... Uh, that's really, and, and I really want to finish it. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> I really want the time to do that. And I'll be involved. I'm now a part-time staffer with uh, Religion, Spirituality, and the Arts program. Okay. So I'll be helping. That's, uh, they'll be having a show in February, the new class. Okay. And we, we've got other shows planned along with uh, this upcoming in November We'll be having a show, and uh, we're still talking about doing a lot of other fun things with the uh, Universalist Unitarian Church of Indianapolis. They've got a great space for a show. Yeah. And uh, I've been in talks with a couple of galleries where we might try to do something that's never been done before in Indianapolis, combining two different galleries for a one opening night experience that incorporates the space between the galleries. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Uh, that's going to take more work than what I really want to do. Uh, and and there'll be there's some other show opportunities too that we'll be able to do some unique things. Yeah. Oh, exciting. Exciting. Okay. So what advice would you give to your younger artist self? It's a light question. <laughs> uh well I already alluded to the fact that back when I was done with uh, college. I went to, to IU and then I also studied under Earl Snellenberger at the University of Indianapolis. Okay. That when I was sort of done and knew that I was able to keep learning on my own and entered my first professional show during that whole time was when I wrote my list of goals. Now that I'm 65 years old, I can say that I've done them. So advice would be to be goal-oriented and learn patience and uh, just keep being creative and don't put yourself in a box if you want to be a fine artist. You just got to keep, have a life where you're just always learning and trying new things all the time. Please don't get stuck in a rut. Especially if it's because you've discovered something that people like and you just want to, and you just keep doing it over and over again because people will keep buying it. Right. Um, sometimes I find that sad. Right. 
that would be for me. It's, it's, uh, it's fine. If that's what makes a person happy, that's totally fine with me, and I can accept that. But I really would like to encourage people to just keep changing, just like watching the clouds, that every moment they're always different. And that uh, in our own lives, we have that opportunity to just keep evolving and being different every moment as well. Oh, so well said, Dan. Um, yeah, I sometimes find that I I need to, as an artist, step back and say, okay, this piece is not going to be for sale. I'm not going to try to make something that I know will sell because then I can have more freedom and I can be more experimental and I can do something different and, and innovative, fun. Um, and it's a it can be a push and pull for professional artists to have that, you know, the voice in your head saying, oh, I know my patrons will love this if I do more of this. And then at the same time, you're going, but I, I want to experiment. And with experimentation, you just don't know what people, you don't know how they're going to react to it. So do you have any thoughts on that specifically? It's okay if you don't. <laughs> the main thing about that artists have in common is that we're people who are willing to take, take risks. Yes. So... That's pretty simple, uh, is that if you are an artist, you're going to be taking risks. Because one thing, you've got something to communicate. One thing, an element of what artists do from all the different disciplines is we are taking the chaos of the world and being able to put it into a composition to help people see things that they wouldn't see on their own. <laughs> Drop mic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is the main message you are trying to convey with your work? If you could narrow it down to one message. Well, as I've already said, I paint about uh, science and art. I really enjoy theoretical physics. I'm not a mathematician, but I can keep up with the conversations and can definitely talk about uh, theoretical physics on a philosophical level. And I have a very deep spiritual side of me. And from my perspective and how I communicate, I don't see a difference between science and faith. And uh, to me, they all work together. It's just, oh, we've got these, some of us lean more towards one than another as far as our perspective goes and how our brain interprets the data that we're getting. And I don't want to get into that too, because I'm also really into uh, psychology and the physiology of the brain. Okay. And in some of my art videos, I uh, demonstrate that with some little effects of how memory and how at night when we're sleeping brain waves flow through to affect our memories and I like putting that kind of stuff into my art so when we get down to real fundamental basics of uh, and quantum physics even and, and uh, like the most the little basic area that we're at now is with the Higgs boson and Higgs field. Yeah. Yeah. And we're at that level, we're approaching that level 
of seeing where there's this somethingness that somehow decides to be either energy or matter. And we're at that basic, you know, that soup that we're all in. And there's so much about how that world, where it becomes matter or energy, uh, can be influenced. And that we're all influencing it and creating the world that's around us. So, uh, those messages about time and uh, the different ideas of whether time is simultaneous, I tend to be more along the lines that time is evolving. And uh, when we get into the very, very base of, of theoretical physics, it's all based on a faith there too that the laws of entropy are what they are. It's like everything comes from entropy. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's formulas for that. There's a, there's a monument to the formula where the guy, I can't remember his name, and I can't remember where it is in Europe, where there's a monument with a formula. That, you know, this is, the, this is entropy. You know, this is so, uh, but there's a lot taken on faith at that level, even as a science that when you get to that bedrock, it's not so solid. And uh, so when I've been delving into time and how to show that in my work, um, it leads me into, uh, as time evolves and how that affects what we're, what we're talking about, dark matter and dark energy, which is like 90% of everything we just don't know what it is Uh, and I think there's something behind entropy even where everything is being uh, pushed apart because there's something underneath that something that's spreading everything apart that will evolve into uh, that other dimensional idea that we've got, there's uh, multiple dimensions, you know, with string theory. And I love string theory. I'm definitely a string theory person. Okay. Uh, so I've, I've liked science a long time, long enough ago. I started studying Einstein when I was 14. Okay. And so when my uh, oldest son was still in probably like fifth grade or something. I, him and his friend, they were really, uh, they were intelligent. So uh, I like math, have them play with math. So we would actually do uh, different equations, uh, Einsteinian equations, and put, instead of them being so abstract, we would put real numbers to them and have them actually work out the equations. So it wasn't just something that you looked at. It was something that was a tool. Which made made it fun for me that uh, I wish I knew more about homeschooling uh, back when my kids were in school. Or at least I wish there was, there were a lot more opportunities to do homeschooling now than what there were. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I really think that the schools took a lot of creativity and and math fun out of of my kids and everybody else I see. 
Uh, there was one time when my youngest son, like he was probably at that fifth grade level two at the time, and I was giving him a hard time about homework, and I, I was saying, you know, you need to work on this. He goes, well, I already know it. And I said, well, you know, Neil could do double-digit multiplying in his head. And he goes, well, so can I. And I was like, yeah, right. So I threw out a number, you know, like 69 times 73, and boom, he gave me an answer before I could even start to get downstairs wow. to my calculator. Wow. And he was right. And I was like, and Neil's in his bedroom, he's four years older, and I was like, Neil, did you know Brian can do double-digit multiplying in his head like you? And he was, well, that's no big deal. I can do triple-digit multiplying in my head. And I'm like, no way. I didn't even know you could do that. So I give him a number, like 127 times 875. Yeah. And he gives me an answer. Then I'm, he, he, I, there was a pause there, but he gave me an answer before I could even get to my calculator again. And, uh, but they went through school enough that they forgot how to do it. Okay. They, you know, they were taught other ways. And that they had to show their work, yeah. which killed Neil. It took all the fun <laughs> out of it because he, he just knew he was no an answer without uh, going through all those steps. Yeah. So I love science. And that's uh, probably will always be part of my, my painting. Yeah. Do you have any ideas this is a big question, and I know that, you know, there's whole books written on this, but ways we can keep creativity in the classroom, and not just the art classroom like that we have at the Art Center, but um, in just your regular public education. I mean, I, I certainly see that in my daughter. A couple years ago, she was doing multiplication for fun before she had to learn that in school. She was asking me how to do it, and we were doing it together, and she was having fun with it, and now she's like, math, blah, 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 you know, and it's it's sad. Um you know, how do you keep it fun? And how do you, I, I know it's a big question. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> uh, I want, when I knew I was, when I went to IU and I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor and I wanted to be an, I was an artist. I thought one way to be able to afford to do that would be to be an art teacher. Mm. When I was at IU, that was when the budget started really hitting schools and the arts were going away real fast. And I could easily see by the time I finished school, uh, it was going to be art teachers trying to keep their jobs, let alone new people coming along, trying to really fit into that space. So I kind of got away from the teaching part. But, of course, when I had kids and I started getting involved in coaching and, and being a volunteer at school a lot, uh, it made it was probably helped make my decision to go back into teaching at the Indianapolis Arts Center so important uh, to just do what I could. And part of what I'm doing now, several years ago, I had started uh, classes for art for homeschooled kids. And since we've had a, a newer administration, there's been a lot more interest into really making that happen in a lot stronger way and getting other departments involved. Uh, 3D, I don't do 3D art. I'm always quick to admit that. I admire that, but I, I'm really 2D. And so we are getting, uh, going to get some more interest in other departments, uh, and we've started up a new homeschooled uh, 
sessions that start this fall. In fact, my first class will be this coming Friday, okay. which I hope this doesn't date your this interview too much. We're not even saying what day that is. Hey, let's just say by the time you hear this, there's going to be homeschooled classes offered at the Indianapolis Arts Center again. And uh, so, and one thing that we're doing is there are classes for kids that's during the day. So okay. it's 10.30 to 12.30 and also options for early afternoon during times when they're going to have a place, we're, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to use those space as well nice. for video and painting and photography and ceramics and you name it. So uh, I'm starting off with, I think, some six to 10 year olds. And we're gonna be doing some drawing basics. And then I really appreciate the unschooled system of learning where the kids take responsibility for what they learn, which is pretty much what I do in my classes. They've been a, that's been a big influence on the way I teach. Okay. And uh, I wanna know who the kid is so that I know I can help them in a direction, whether that's painting or video uh, or watching clouds, which I like watching clouds. Yeah. So uh, uh, I need to, I really want to know somebody to be able to help them be creative and not just, you know, here's step by step what we're going to do with this project. Sure. One at a time, one at a time. So this is my last question for you, Dan. What is your favorite art book or story? And of course the story can be a personal story or something from art history. Um, what came to your mind when I asked that question? The first art book that was, re that was really given to me uh, was a book on Maxfield Parish. Okay. And that was given to me by a friend who I guess would be considered my first art patron in the sense that he's bought several pieces. He lives out in San Francisco, Oakland, the okay. Bay Area. Okay. And uh, he commissioned me for what has become my most famous painting, which is uh, Agape Hoosier Summer Innocence. It's an uh, image with three kids floating together. Okay in an Indiana landscape, rural environment. Uh, he commissioned me to do, uh, paint a masterpiece. That was, you know, like I said, I, do, I don't paint. That's what, what I said, paint a masterpiece. I know, he said, you know, it's like, what kind of, you know, what do you got in mind? Is just paint a masterpiece. So it turns out I did. Uh, it's kind of been uh, like uh, Edvard Monk's The Scream, series uh, he did that series it was really kind of different from a lot of his other's other paintings and he was sort of young when he did it and he always he had to live the rest of his life with everybody talking about the scream even though he's he was the most famous painter in his country and the most respected everybody still said why don't you do some more like that uh, so I kind of had that with my painting with Hoosier Summer Innocence that um, I've had a lot of people say, why don't you paint another painting like that? Um, it's like, yeah, I'm supposed to just do a book series of paintings with, you know, kids floating or something. It's like, yeah. no, no, thank you. I got to move on. Right. Right. Uh, and 
a very important book that I got when I was a kid from my parents was a John Nagy Learned a Draw Kit. John Nagy, J-O-N-G-N-A-G-Y. I still have some of those art supplies from that kit. He had a TV show that came on uh, for like 15 minutes. You had to be able to do a drawing in 15 minutes. I was asked by an adult in a drawing class at the Art Center several years ago, what is the best drawing book? It's like, oh my gosh, you know, there's, you could fill bookstores full of all the drawing books out there. And I was, I'm not, there's not that many that really appealed to me, but it dawned on me. I said, you know, it's the John Nagy Learn to Draw book. And the very next week, he came in with one. He got it on eBay for like two bucks. And, uh, and I was going through it again. I was like, yeah, this book is thin. Uh, and, but it's like every page has got this chock full of information on every subject that you need to learn. And I don't, I mean, it's got to be less than 48 pages. Yeah. And okay. uh, so there have been times since then that I've incorporated, especially with kids, uh, a drawing based on the John Nagy learned a draw style of using forms and values to create something just in grayscale, which is all he worked in was grayscale. Uh, John Nagy not only was an influence for me, but other a lot of artists in my generation. Did I say how old I am? Okay, so in my generation, there was Bob Ross. He was a biggie. He, Bob Ross's whole show is based on what John Nagy did that he saw as a kid. Okay. Uh, so uh, that book was a major influence. Another extremely, has become an extreme major influence is Caspar uh, David Friedrich. And when I was, he's an artist from the Romantic period of Northern Germany. He was born in, uh, just before 1800. He died in 1840. Uh, I never had any interest in the Romantic period when I was studying art. I liked the dynamics of the abstract artists and the the 20s and what was happening in the in the 50s you know it's like I didn't care about what looked like old landscape painting and then at a one artist show that I had at Wood Glackku's gallery the first gallery that was in Circle City Industrial Complex I'd known Ellie Siskind for 30 years and here we are, and Ellie Siskind, by the way, is a highly respected regional artist. She's got paintings collected by all four of the state art museums and collected by a lot of people around. We love going to art shows together for IDATA First Friday Art Tours, and we would oftentimes be catty about a lot of art, but we would also have... Uh, like a lot of the same art. We could appreciate the qualities that some people would have. And uh, so we just enjoyed talking about art. It was always fun. People would kind of follow us around at times because they would enjoy hearing us be catty or what we saw that was good about something. So she gives me this book. She says, this, you know, seeing my, that my art show, she said, you know, you've, your style and, and some, of your, some of your techniques are real similar to this guy, 
named Caspar David Friedrich. And I took her book, and I by the time I was at page 10, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. This guy was like me in so many ways. Okay. He was the first artist that took uh, religious symbolism out of the church and into nature, okay. which is what the Romantic period was. He was one of the leaders of the Romantic period, along with uh, another philosopher, and there was a minister, and there was another artist that he hung around with, and a poet. You know, these people were kind of hanging around together. But he was like a real, he's the one that took their message and made it stronger. And so his landscapes aren't really uh, just landscapes. It's, it's chock full of symbolism. And I uh, had already evolved to that way of looking at using symbolism myself from being abstract to becoming realistic. As I studied Friedrich and read more books, I think I own seven books in my studio. Uh, Norman Rockwell had five books. So when I read how Norman Rockwell had five Friedrich books in his studio, I was like, all right, I got Norman beat by two. Uh, I learned about the artists that had studied Friedrich. Which included almost everybody you can, I mean, every name I, I am going to name, you've, uh, you'll recognize. There was uh, uh, Kandinsky, for one, the first abstract artist, who's Russian, which, by the way, the Friedrich art was mostly bought by Russians. Uh, he was uh, a favorite of Tsar Nicholas, whichever number that, Tsar Nicholas okay. number whatever. Uh, and so because he was popular with the Tsar, all the other royals were buying, coming to Germany and buying his work also and commissioning him for work. So he was really well known in Russia. So a lot of abstract art owes Friedrich as uh, the father of them because he was able, even though he was realism, it was all about symbols. So when the early uh even the Impressionists, uh, there's uh, a lot of what Turner was aware of, Friedrich. Some of these people uh, were able to take that idea of symbols a little farther than in a different direction than what it had been before. So then along comes Picasso, Van Gogh, uh, uh, Marcel Duchamp, Jackson Pollock even. Uh, you know, he studied under Thomas Hart Benton, right? Uh, Benton was a big fan of Friedrich and made Jackson Pollock study Friedrich. Uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, I did a homage piece to Salvador Dali. In fact, it's, I did a whole series of homage pieces to my art influences. Okay. And the one I did for Dali was uh, from Dali's uh, Woman at the Window which is a woman looking through a window onto like a harbor. And I came to realize later that that was Dali's homage to Friedrich, okay. who did was the first one to do a woman looking out a window, uh, using the window as a portal and the woman as a Rucken figure, which is a German word that's about a paragraph long in its meaning, but basically... Uh, Friedrich was the first to deliberately use 
show the backside of a person in the painting as in the viewer is sharing the same view as the person in the painting okay. as opposed to the person looking back at you. Right. So okay. you're sharing her looking through a portal into another world. Okay. And it was the first, in that painting, was the first use of a portal deliberately to show from one world to another. Uh, even though there have been lots of paintings with windows in them, most of the time they were used as a source of light because they exist. Mm -hmm. uh, like Ingalls with his, uh, those little kitchen scenes, uh, the windows are prominent, but they're a source of light sure. and, and a balance in the composition where he used gates and windows and doors to take you from one place to another. So all those things, I had taken all that abstract stuff from, because, you know, I love Mark Rothko and, uh, you know, the abstract work that the other artists I've mentioned, those, you know, that's how my style developed was from my favorites. Okay. In fact, when I was in high school, I read a quote from Dali that said, uh, he listed his favorite artists. And I couldn't, re there was like five artists he named. And I never could remember the names of all five of those artists. You know, it's like those five artists uh, make me Dali. Okay. So I, that's why I did my homage to these artists, uh, because those artists made me. And then to find out that I was, that's all that history brought me to using realism and using more of a landscape form uh, really brought me full circle with Friedrich, who I didn't even know about. Okay. So uh, thanks to Ellie Siskind, she sent me into a world that I had never anticipated. Uh, so even as you, as you take an artist's path, yeah. hopefully you can, that's why I keep saying it's so important to keep learning and all. So uh, it's been fun for me at this stage of my life to find that I've gone so full circle and so similarly with somebody who is so important that a lot of people don't even know about. Yeah. Until somebody like me comes along and says, you really need to look into Friedrich. <laughs> uh, I it did enter a uh, regional art show uh, that had a, a real prestigious judge come from California. I think she teaches at Stanford or something. And uh, she... Uh, was looking at all this artwork, you know, doing the judging with okay. people around, you know, this is going to be in the show and this isn't, and little reasons why. And it was driving me crazy because I did, I did the self-portrait as a Rukin figure. I was looking out the window. Uh, it's called Seasons, and it's got winter and spring and all the seasons in it. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was located in such a way that it was going to be a couple of hours before she was going to even get to my paintings. I think I had three, but there was this one, you know, this is my major painting. I really wanted to hear what she had to say about it. But right off the bat, she made an allusion to the Romantic period. Okay. And I'm like, all right, she, you know, she knows the Romantic period. And, I mean, she had already done a walk around. So she had an idea already, and then they went to lunch, and, you know, the, 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 patrons of the museum and stuff like that and so she does her judging after that which is when I showed up and a few other artists and the public and 
but it's driving, you know, she's making comments about the works as we're going around. I'm going, man, this is driving crazy. We're good. She's going to be filling up this show pretty soon, too. And when she finally got to my painting, she even remarked about how similar it was to Friedrich and the importance of what Friedrich was doing and stuff. And she could see this in my painting. I was like, oh, that is so cool. I love it. Somebody could actually see something that I was doing so deliberately with this. Okay, so um, we've gone through my questions. Do you have any final thoughts to add? or? Not really. I think we had a really nice conversation. You made me talk a lot. I, <laughs> since, you know, I do teach and, and talk in public, so it's real easy to get me going. And a lot of times it's harder to get me to stop. So uh, I really appreciate that you invited me to come here. So thank you. Oh, well, Dan, I could talk to you all day about art. So thanks for coming. Okay. Oh, what a wonderful chat we have with Dan. Um, in lieu of sharing another story, because I feel like our interview was so jam-packed with all these little stories, um, instead I'm going to go back to the quote of the day that I said at the beginning of the podcast. So it was by Caspar David Friedrich, who Dan talked about extensively, um, who was a painter during the Romantic period in Germany. And um, so after having chatted with Dan about it, I looked him up and read some different things and of course only have dipped my toe into that world. But I'm certainly excited to get to know this Caspar David Friedrich fellow more. And the quote that I shared at the beginning was this, the artist should paint not only what he sees before him, but also what he sees within him. If, however, he sees nothing within him, then he should also refrain from painting that which he sees before him. So, in other words, I feel like Friedrich is saying um, that you've got to have a reason to paint. It's got to be coming from within you and you've got to be expressing something or reflecting your inner thoughts, beliefs, that there's got to be a drive that's that's springing forth from within, or as Kandinsky said, from um, within the soul. Um, and that one shouldn't just sit down and paint and say, I am going to paint this landscape today because that's what everybody does. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do see a lot of students come and they they know they want to paint, but they don't know why. And so, and I'm not saying, oh, don't don't just start off doing all those standard things that everybody does. If you're just you just don't know why. I think um, that's perfectly legitimate to come to your first painting classes and say, okay, I've seen lots of landscapes that I like, and I'm just going to do them to get those skills. But when you're really sitting down to do your masterpiece and those bigger works like Dan was talking about, it's got to be coming from um, a meaningful place. It's got to be coming from within. Um, otherwise, there's, there's almost no point in doing it, right? Um, another thing that Dan said in the interview was he said, Artists are taking the chaos of the world and putting it into a composition to help people see things that they wouldn't see on their own. And so what he's driving at is that role the artist can take to shed light on 
what is more meaningful and the bigger picture or in you know the case of molecular structure perhaps the smaller picture that makes the bigger picture <laughs> and if we can go within then we can proceed to go without and to show those symbols and things that are outside of ourselves to express what we're trying to say. Alrighty, so enough philosophy for the day. (laughs) This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.